Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 10th, 2019, and this is show number 722. What Chit Chat Across the Pond this week was another installment of Programming by Stealth. We learned about the library called Mustache, which is just fun to say, and uh, that allows us to create templates and have them automatically filled in. But it also allows us to do conditional statements. It's really, really cool stuff. This was a little more of a struggle for me at the beginning, but Bart brought it home in the end, and I think I've got it. We'll find out when I try to do my homework. Anyway, you can listen to this episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice, either under Chit Chat Across the Pond or under Programming by Stealth. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com. Every once in a while, I find myself descending into madness when I work on a review. Remember when I got curious about exactly what the government regulations were about banks and using SMS for two-factor authentication? That was our fun trip into NIST Special Publication 800-63B. Well, this time, I'm trying not to go down as far, but it's a challenge. The subject is Thunderbolt 3 docs. I'm on my fourth one now, and I think the more I look at them, the more details I notice, which causes me to do more research, which causes me to want to share what I learned with you. Before I dig in, I wanted to let you know that I've included a comparison of the four docs I'm talking about with everything from ports to speed to cost to size. I've also got links to all of the docs so you can see more about them. Okay, with that groundwork laid, we can get started. You may re- uh, remember that I reviewed the Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock in January of last year under the headline, Thunderbolt Docks, just because you can plug it in doesn't mean it will work. That was the beginning of my adventure. I liked the Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock, but at the time, I didn't realize that there were much better docks available or have become available since then. I received the Excel Thunderbolt 3 dock as a review unit, and I told you about it in an article entitled, Excel Thunderbolt 3 dock, More Ports for Less Money. Where the Belkin has 9 ports, the XL had 11. It's not just counting total ports that matters, though. I like the XL because it had 5 USB-A ports, where the Belkin only had 3. My opinion on dock comparisons was nearly entirely determined by how many USB-A devices I needed to plug in. One thing, amongst many, that I didn't understand was the importance of power delivery of a dock. I did not notice that the XL only provides 70 watts of power over Thunderbolt 3, while the Belkin provides 85 watts, which is enough to power a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Now, you can charge a 15-inch at 70 watts, but it takes longer. There's more I didn't understand, but we're going to keep moving and circle back to what I didn't understand. The next dock I tested was the CalDigit TS3 Plus, and I fell in love with this dock. I called my review, CalDigit TS3 TS3 Plus, Thunderbolt 3 dock, more ports, more money, more better. This little powerhouse has 15 total ports, five of which are USB-A, and it has four USB-C, where the previous docks only had two USB ports. As time has passed since the first dock review, I've gained more USB-C devices, so having four is a big advantage. It also does provide the full 85 watts of power delivery. Now, the form factor of the Belkin and XL docks was a long, flat box with most of the ports on the back. Belkin and XL docks are 8 and 9 inches wide, respectively, and 3 and a half inches deep, so they take up a lot of space on the desk. On the front, the Belkin only has one USB-A port in the headphone jack, while the XL has no ports on the front at all, and, and instead has two USB-A ports and the headphone jack on the side. 
Now, both docks, you pretty much have to lift it up and yank it around to get to any of the ports on the back, which, of course, is hard because you've got all the equipment that's connected to those lines kind of lifting up as you're trying to look at the back of the dock. Now, in contrast, the CalDigit is nearly the same volume as the other two docks, but instead of being a long flat box, it stands on edge and only takes up 1.6 inches by 4 inches of desk space. That alone makes me love the CalDigit a lot. But it also has USB-A, USB-C, headphone jack, and an SD card slot all on the front. With this much on the front, I can keep the permanent things plugged into the back that I don't need to mess around with, you know, things like my camera and microphone, but then I can keep some temporary cables around for on-the-fly connectivity to the dock on the front. That works really, 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 really well for me. But all of this didn't keep me from having a wandering eye towards the OWC 14-port Thunderbolt 3 dock that CEO Larry O'Connor told us about at CES. I asked him for a review unit and it arrived a few weeks ago, but I've just now gotten the time to check it out. The OWC dock is a long flat box like the first two I'd tested, at 9 inches wide and 3.5 inches deep and an inch tall. Like the label on the tin, it has 14 ports, 5 of which are USB-A and 4 of which are USB-C, so that's great. Now remember, the letters mean shape, not speed or even protocol. Of the 4 USB-C ports on the OWC dock, Two are USB only, and the other two are Thunderbolt 3, which means they can deliver just about anything. Thunderbolt 3 can be video, it can be audio, it can be data, it can be Ethernet, just pick whatever you want. Now, it was in studying the specs of the OWC dock that I really started to learn more about the ports than I dug into before. I built a table in numbers trying to compare the four docks, and it started to get very complicated. Each of the docks I tested had silkscreen information on each port trying to indicate the type of port it was and what it was for. For example, on the OWC dock, there's a USB port, a USB-C port on the back that has a lightning bolt and a little icon of a computer. The lightning bolt indicates uh, that it's Thunderbolt, which is kind of funny. Lightning and thunder, I guess, go together and you can't draw a picture of thunder. So anyway, it's got the lightning bolt that designates that's Thunderbolt. And then the icon of the computer tells you this is the port for power delivery. So this is where you want to plug in your computer so it charges. But this is also the port through which all of the signals will go to the other ports on the dock. It's very important that you plug into the right port using a Thunderbolt cable, and we'll get more into cables later. Some of the docks had USB-A ports with a little SS next to them. Some said 5 gigabits per second next to the USB-A ports. The XL dock had two USB-A ports with SS next to the USB symbol, and then a 10. So, okay, well, the OWC dock says USB 3.1 Gen 1 next to the USB-A ports on the back and the front, but one of the USB-C ports says USB 3.1 Gen 2, and the CalDigit has both Gen 1 and Gen 2 USB-C ports. So what is going on here? What is SS? Why do some SS ports say 10 next to them? What's USB 3.1 Gen 1 versus Gen 2? How can we make a comparison of all of this with all these different terms? I'm going to try desperately to untangle this. Then I'm going to tangle it all back up when I'm done. I'm also going to blame the people who have written the USB-C spec because they clearly think that obfuscating information will make their job secure. I remember actually firing someone for that one time. But anyway, so USB 3 is a hot mess, as you've just heard. At the severe risk of oversimplifying things, I'm going to give you some synonyms to work with. USB 3.1 Gen 1 is capable of transferring data at 5 gigabits per second. Okay, USB 3.1 Gen 1, 5 gigabits per second. 
while USB 3.1 Gen 2 is capable of 10 gigabits per, sec per second, okay? So Gen 1 is 5 gigabits, Gen 2 is 10 gigabits. All right, SS stands for super speed, and super speed is the same as Gen 1, is the same as 5 gigabits per second. Now, none of the docs I've tested uh, showed it, but you might also see SS Plus. That actually means Gen 2 or 10 gigabits per second. Okay, are you with me so far? All right, we got the groundwork laid. We're good. Now let's get lost again. We have enough information to really compare the docs now, but just to make sure you leave unhappy and confused like I am, let's change all of this. Turns out the evil people at the USB Promoter Group have renamed things ostensibly for clarity. That's funny right there. The new spec is called USB 3.2. Our old friend, SuperSpeed, capable of 5 gigabits per second, previously known as USB 3.1 Gen 1, is now called USB 3.2 Gen 1 by 1, like 1x1. I swear, I am not making this up. When Stephen Getz explained all this to me, I told him I was going to kill myself. But let's keep going because it gets worse. So USB 3.1 Gen 1 is now USB 3.2 Gen 1 by 1. Now 10 gigabits per second, formerly known as USB 3.1 Gen 2, is now called 3 USB 3.2 Gen 2 by 1. Super helpful, right? And finally, we have USB 3.2 Gen 2 by 2, which is now 20 gigabits per second. So the good news is at least we got some new some speed improvements with the new spec. So we have 5 gigabits per second, 10 gigabits per second, and now 20 gigabits per second. Now I put a table from Wikipedia and a link to the explanation in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about in all its glory. Now as I told you, uh, I, as I said, I told you this part of the story is just to make sure you're as annoyed as I am. Guess what else? This week, it was announced that USB 4 is coming. It's probably going to be finalized before the end of the year, and it's going to bring us 40 gigabits per second. It turns out I really don't care about the speed. I really, truly don't. I just want them to simplify this naming convention, and then I will be happy. So, I've had four docs in the last year or so. None of them have used this nonsense USB 3.2 spec conversation, so we're going to go back to simpler times. We're just going to talk about five versus 10 gigabits per second. No SS, no gen this, gen that nonsense. We're just going to talk 5 gigabits per second, 10 gigabits per second. So now we can talk about the OWC doc. That's what this was supposed to be a review of, right? So let's get back to it. Okay, the OWC doc has quite a few ports on the front, which is awesome. Remember I told you I like having stuff on the front so I can get in and out of that stuff more easily. It not only has the beloved SD card slot that I got with the CalDigit, it's even got a micro SD card slot, which is great for people with GoPros and other action cameras. I don't think it's essential, though, because I think most people use those little carriers for micro SD cards, which are full-size SD cards, because the micro SD cards are pretty easy to lose. But it's a nice touch that you do have that on the OWC dock. The ODWC dock also has a combined headphone microphone jack on the front, which means you can plug in a headset mic and annoy your friends while gaming or participate in conference calls. There's a 5 gigabit per second USB port on the front, which also says high powered. The graphic from the OWC website shows a phone and a tablet charging from it. So even though I wasn't able to find this in any of the information on OWC site, I assume that's a 1.5 amp port. So that's pretty cool. There's also a 10 gigabit per second USB port on the front, USB-A port. So you can charge a device, plug in an SD card, use a headset, 
all on the front of the device. And these are the perfect ports to put on the front. I think OWC really thought this out well. Like I said, I think it's important to have the right ports on the front. On the back, the OWC dock has four 5 gigabit per second USB-A ports, one of which is also high power. You'll just have to memorize that it's the one on the end because like all of the docks except for the Cal digit, it's really hard to pick these docks up and see what's on the back when you have everything plugged in. The OWC dock also has a digital audio out like some of the other docks. There are two USB-C slash Thunderbolt ports, both with a lightning symbol, but one has that little computer symbol too so you know where to plug in the computer. It has a mini DisplayPort connector that can support a 5K monitor at 60 Hz, and of course the Thunderbolt 3 port can also support a 4 or 5K monitor. I have the 5K LG monitor plugged into the Thunderbolt 3 port on the OWC, and it works great. Now, one of the joys of Thunderbolt is that you can daisy-chain devices, so since my LG display is a Thunderbolt display, it's got, th- it's got Thunderbolt ports on it, it also serves as a Thunderbolt hub to more devices. Now, I know you're tired of the discussion of speeds, but we're going to bring this up yet again. Thunderbolt 2 can deliver 20 gigabits per second, while Thunderbolt 3 can deliver 40 gigabits per second. But get this, if you have a Thunderbolt 3 port in a device, but you use a Thunderbolt 2 cable, you're only going to get the 20 gigabits per second of Thunderbolt 2. So cables matter. Now, the reason I was compelled to learn about this was that the OWC dock comes with a ludicrously short Thunderbolt cable, and I wondered why. The Belkin came with a 1-meter cable, the CalDigit with a shorter 0.7-meter cable, but the OWC is the shortest at a half a meter. Because the cable is so darn short, I have to put the dock on the right-hand side of my monitor just to get it close enough to barely reach my MacBook Pro. It's so much in the way that I had to stack my microphone's USB interface and my drink coaster on top of it. And I don't like the dock to be on the right-hand side because when I plug my headphones into the front, the cable drags across my trackpad and causes trackpad inputs. I hate having it on the right. It's one of the things I like about having a longer cable. Get it over on the left. So I'm wondering why did they put such a short cable in there? Why not just give you a long enough cable? So I started looking into the prices on Thunderbolt 3 cables, and it turns out they're really expensive. Even if you shop at Monoprice, which is where the cheapest cables are fine, least expensive, I should say, a one-meter Thunderbolt 3 cable is $47. That same length in Thunderbolt 2 is only 20 bucks. So from what I've seen, uh, this is another important thing. When you get these cables, make sure you mark them because only CalDigit put a three on the Thunderbolt cable so you know which ones not to loan out. When I was talking to Stephen Getz about this, he tried to help me understand whether we actually care about these speeds. USB USB at five and 10 gigabits per second, Thunderbolt at 20 and 40 gigabits per second. Who actually needs those speeds? Well, he knows that I bought the Samsung T5 SSD as a backup drive a while ago, so he used that as the baseline to make the case. The T5 is a very fast SSD, clocking in at 540 megabytes per second transfer rate. Now, to compare that to the USB and Thunderbolt speeds we're talking about, we need to change those bytes into bits. We're going to do a little math here. Sorry, David Roth, we're going to do math. I should have put that in the heading. He says I always have to warn him. So. There's eight bits in a byte. So a 540 megabyte per second drive is 540 times eight or 4,320 megabits per second, also known as 4.3 gigabits per second. So my SSD, which is super fast, 
has a transfer rate of 4.3 gigabits per second. So that means after all this talking and yapping about specs and speeds, even the slowest 5 gigabit per second USB 3.1 Gen 1 ports are faster than this wicked fast SSD. What this tells me is that the speeds of Thunderbolt 3 are really for people pushing lots more data than even a geek like me. Real-time video recording comes to mind or maybe writing to two SSDs or more at the same time. Those are the people that need these massive speeds. What matters to me, and what I suspect probably matters to most of you high-end nerds, is a lot of ports. Now soon you're going to care deeply about having a lot of USB-C ports, but for now I bet most of you care about a lot of USB-A ports most of the time. The bottom line is, of the four docks I've tested and analyzed, the Belkin dock is the one I would absolutely avoid. It has the fewest ports at only nine, and it was the most expensive and is still the most expensive, coming in at $350. The XL dock with 11 ports is on sale right now, running only $210 on Amazon. If you simply check the little box for the $40 off coupon, that is. Now, if you need a lot of ports and you want the right ports on the front and you don't mind the big flat form factor, OWC's 14-port Thunderbolt 3 dock for $300 on Amazon is a great option. Now, if you can live with the paltry 20 gigabits per second speed of Thunderbolt 2, I would totally buy a longer cable to give you more flexibility on where it sits on your desk. The OWC 14-port Thunderbolt 3 dock will actually be perfect for Steve, and uh, that'll replace the Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock he's been using. Not enough ports. So I'm still going to stick with the Cal Digit for me, though with the most ports, including one more USB-C port than any of the others, plus having the right ports on the front for me, that makes a big difference. But one of the biggest things is having that tiny little footprint on my desk. So the CalDigit TS3 Plus is $300, uh, $310 on Amazon, and that one is the winner for me. Well, the most awesome Alistair Jenks has recorded several reviews for us that I'm going to be playing over the next few weeks. Let's listen to the dulcet tones of Alistair. When it comes to task management apps on Apple platforms, there has long been a gold standard in the Omni Group's OmniFocus. I've been invested in OmniFocus for over three years now and admire the fit and polish of the product. But I'm at a point in my life where its complexity is now overkill and, well, I'm falling out of love with it. One of the few uses I have for Siri is setting reminders, as I often think of things I need to add to my list when it's not terribly convenient to stop, open an app, tap around and type out the reminder. As of iOS 11, it has been possible to direct Siri to add a reminder directly to OmniFocus, or rather, theoretically possible. In my experience, Siri tends to cut me off before I add in OmniFocus to the end of my sentence, and sometimes I cut myself off because it's just not a natural thing to say. It has been so frustrating that I simply stopped doing it, or on the few occasions I decided to use Siri, I just let the reminder go into the default Reminders app. Last November, my eye was caught by a headline on MacStories.net. Reminder and Good Task, Third-Party Upgrades to Apple Reminders I'd been vaguely aware that some apps directly used Apple's Reminders data, but I had not given any a try in a long time. I started reading the Mac Stories post, and the more I read, the more I liked. The benefit of this approach is I don't need to direct Siri to put the reminder into a specific app, but I still get a nice interface and a few extra features over the default app. I liked the look of Good Task and downloaded it on my iPhone to have a go. Good Task gives you 14 days of full functionality before you have to decide whether to pay, and this was plenty of time for me to make that decision. 
I chose to make a one-time payment to unlock the app and then installed it on my iPad as well. Mostly I use my iPhone to manage tasks, but if I happen to be using the iPad when something crops up, it's right there. As some of my tasks are 100% going to be executed on the Mac, it's very useful to have it there as well, so I've also paid for the Mac version now. So, what are the features of Good Task that make me happy? Themes are much appreciated. Everyone has their colour preferences, and at the moment I like my utility apps to have a dark theme. Good Task delivers on this with a handful of predefined choices, plus the ability to go completely custom. Smart lists are a really useful feature. I've got a number of lists for different purposes, some time critical, some one day, so only a subset of those need to remain front of mind. I have a smart list I call Focus, which includes tasks from those important lists that are either due in the next three days or have no date set. Each actual list has its own colour, so in the smart list I can easily see the nature of each task from the colour. You can also show calendar appointments in the Good Task Views. This is incredibly handy for an overview of what I've got on. It's interesting that I also recently started using BusyCal for many of the same reasons, and it includes reminders in its calendar views. Quick actions are just superb. When you create a task, you get the usual selection of fields to fill out, but a simple swipe on the screen takes you to a grid of quick actions. A standard set is provided, but you can create your own and customise the existing ones as you please. What is a quick action? It's a button that sets some aspect of a task. I have a button for tomorrow at 9am for things I expect to do when I'm at work, and another for 6.30pm for things I expect to do when I get home from work. I've also got buttons for plus one day and plus two hours, and a default one to clear the date and time. But you can have them set more than just times. Priority, tags, alerts, repeating, and more can be set. I also have three buttons that allow me to instantly allocate a task to one of my three most commonly used lists. While your basic lists will intrinsically sync between devices because they are internet-based, you can also sync your good task preferences using iCloud. A nice touch as tweaking a smart list on one device will see the changes propagate to all other devices automatically. There are numerous other features and many configurations you can make to personalise GoodTask. I'm slowly exploring further in the app to find these and see if they add value for me. This is not intended to be a comprehensive review as I have deliberately focused on what makes GoodTask great for me and glossed over some of the important implementation details, like how features not in reminders are implemented. It would be remiss of me, however, not to mention the price. There are two ways to pay for Good Task for iOS, both achieved by in-app purchase. As stated earlier, the app is fully functional out of the gate for no outlay, but stops working after 14 days. At that time, you can choose either to pay a one-off charge of $9.99 or a subscription of $9.99 per year. The difference? If you subscribe, you'll be helping to support the developer to keep GoodTask up to date. There is no functional difference between the two options for the user. The macOS version of GoodTask also has a 14-day trial, after which it will cost you a one-time purchase of $19.99 to unlock. Feature-wise, the macOS version is identical, but takes advantage of the environment very well to see more information at once. GoodTask strikes a great balance between the rudimentary reminders and the full power of an app like OmniFocus. It offers the advantage of system integration for its data source, meaning Siri, Shortcuts and Automator can be easily made to work well with the app. It is also easily personalised and has a clean design language. I find it a pleasure to use. 
I was really excited by Alistair's review because I've been looking for a better to-do list. I love Wonderlist, but it's been deprecated by Microsoft, and I fear that at any time it's just going to disappear. I've been trying to use Reminders more, and while it's limited, I, like Alistair, love to use Siri to add things to my lists. With the watch integration, it's not at all uncommon for me to lift my wrist while running on the beach and say, hey, ass lady, remind me to tell Steve this funny thing when I get home. Reminders works okay for me, but it's so limited, and it looks like good task might be giving me some of the enhancements that I need. I was running the free 14-day trial for Mac when I thought to check Setup, and sure enough, it's available there. Finally, a great app that I don't already own that's in Setup. I love the Setup service because it's got all this great stuff, but it's all this great stuff that I already bought. So if you haven't already bought all your cool software, go get a Setup subscription. But uh, anyway, I'm excited to give this a try, and um, I'm doing the free trial on the phone and the iPad too. So anyway, I'm going to give it a try. I pride myself on paying attention to accessibility as, you know, part of the natural fabric of my podcast and my blog. What is that saying taken from Proverbs, pride goeth before a fall? Yeah, I've fallen big time on this one. You know, I mean, I'm a fanatic about making sure I have alt tags on my images. Alt tags are text that web developers enter on images so that screen readers can tell the viewer what they're quote unquote looking at. And Programming by Stealth, Bart has been doing an amazing job of making sure that the code we write meets the accessibility standards too. But as with most things, there's always a lot more we can learn. This week, someone tweeted out the latest WebAIM Million Report. WebAIM stands for Web Accessibility in Mind. These folks do a report that evaluates, evaluates the top 1 million homepages for accessibility. Now, the purpose of this is not to like shame websites or developers, but rather to find trends in what can be done to improve accessibility. Like, where are the failures? What are people doing wrong that they could improve on? A report like this sounds super dull, but I found it fascinating. It's written extremely well, and it's very accessible to the layperson. They methodically go through how they pick the sites, why they look only at homepages. Spoiler, it's because homepages are the most accessed and receive the most attention from developers. And research indicates a correlation between issues discovered there and other site pages. When you get past all the methodology paragraphs, you'll find a single easy-to-read graph that shows the top six most common failures according to the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Web Content Accessibility Guidelines is always shortened to WCAG2. Anyway, WCAG2, these tests find that 97.8% of homepages had WCAG2 failures. But let's take a look and see how hard these things would be to, to fix. The top six in order are low contrast text, missing alt tags for images, empty links, missing form input labels, missing document language, and empty buttons. So I was curious how my own website would stack up. My first assumption was that the only thing I might have to look at would be whether my text is high contrast enough. I had often wondered about contrast, but I didn't know how to measure it or what it was supposed to be. I mean, how contrasty is contrasty enough? Luckily, the WebAM Million Report had a link to their own article explaining low contrast text with reference to the WCAG documentation. There was a lot of information on that page, but the most useful section explained that the minimum contrast ratio is 4.5 to 1, and that large text needs to be at 3, uh, 3 to 1. Okay, great. I've got it. 4.5 to 1. 
So how do I know whether the text on my homepage meets that 4.5 to 1 minimum? It's almost like the WebAM folks knew that would be my next question because they included a link to the Wave Accessibility Evaluation Tool. This tool analyzes any web page for accessibility and then provides specific information on failures. There's two ways to use this tool. You can put the page in question into the website at wave.webaim.org, or you can download an extension for Firefox or Chrome to give you the same information. If you've got a lot of sites and pages to analyze and repair, that extension would be super useful. But if you just want to look at one or two, the website gives you the same exact information. So I plopped in the homepage for podfeed.com at the wave.webaim.org website. When the page comes up in Wave, there's a left side panel now that shows a summary of how well the page meets the WCAG2 guidelines. I was surprised to find a fair number of errors at podfeed.com. But that's good news. I was finding out about it, right? That's not bad news. I mean, what fun would this be if I went, yeah, I'm perfect. Anyway, in the screenshot I supplied in the show notes, it shows that I have five errors. This summary level explains that there are three more tabs to dig down into in the Wave tool, the first of which is details. Clicking on details shows that I didn't really have five errors. There's currently 22 errors in contrast alone, at least as of the time of the the screenshot. The good news is that the 22 errors are designated right on the page with a little red icon. It shows an ABC with descending contrast. So I can look right at the page and I can see the offending text. The link titles under the images on the homepage were failing the contrast test. They were a pretty dark red, but apparently not dark enough. And by the way, it matters what the background is too. So they were dark red on white, but not dark enough. In my red on white link titles, it said the contrast was 4.91 to 1. Well, that's technically slightly above the guideline of 4.5 to 1, although just barely. But it also showed AA and AAA below the contrast ratio, where AA said pass in green and AAA said fail in red. At first, I assumed the AAA meant large text. But then I found another section in the, in the tab there that shows large text, and it said pass at both AA and AAA. So now I got to figure out what do AA and AAA mean? When I clicked on the little red symbol next to one of my links, it offered to give me more information about that. And that took me to a listing of the section in the WCAG2 spec that talked about AA and AAA. That's where I got completely lost. I kept digging and going deeper and deeper into these specs. I ended up at WCAG2 section 1.4.6, Contrast Enhanced, which explains for AAA Enhanced, the contrast ratio minimum is 3 to 1. But there's no explanation of what AA and AAA means. I started wondering, could this be something like a AAA rating on a hotel is better than a AA rating? I sent out a tweet asking that question with the hashtag A11Y. That means accessibility ally. It's a great way to tag things when you have questions because a lot of people who are into accessibility can answer you because they're following that hashtag. I got an answer back from a gentleman named Peter Gruxa, who is a lovely Canadian with a focus on accessibility. His answer was, quote, it doesn't relate to text size. WCAG uses individual success criteria as a means to test for levels of conformance. These levels are broken down into A, AA, and AAA. In order to meet conformance for a level, all checks for it and lower levels must pass. A is the starting point. Great. Well, I decided to set AAA as my stretch goal and to fix the bigger errors of AA first. It seems like, well, you're not going to get your AAA rating until you get your AA rating done. 
When I looked at the Wave Tool results, I found that the text of my menus across the top, where it says, you know, about, subscribe to the podcast, all that stuff, that was too low of a contrast to even meet AA rating of 4.5 to 1. Okay, so great. We know I'm failing. How do we figure out how to fix this? Well, below the contrast areas, uh, there was a contrast tool. You can type in the hex code for the foreground and background color, and it will calculate the contrast ratio for you. Okay, that's piece one. We need to know how to calculate it. But how do I know what hex code to put in there to check? Turns out there's a lot of tools available to do this. Basically, just type color picker into your search engine of choice, and you'll find one. I chose to use a plugin for Firefox and Chrome called ColorZilla from ColorZilla.com. By the way, I know there used to be a color picker on the Mac. I can't find it anymore. There is a color picker, but it doesn't give you hex codes. It gives you like RGB and stuff. Anyway, so I chose ColorZilla as a plugin. Now on my website, I can tap on the ColorZilla icon and find out the actual color of my fonts. Yeah, I know, Helma. I could just look in my CSS, but at this point, I was too lazy for that. But I'll come back to it, Helma. I will, I promise. So color pickers like ColorZilla will spit out several different ways of defining the color. But again, hex codes are the easiest to work with, and that's what I need in the Wave tool. So hex codes are six characters long, and you'll see a hashtag in front of it. So for example, pure white is represented by FFFFFF. So from ColorZilla, I can determine the hex code of this text that's got the problem. But that's the text that's not high enough contrast. How do I find something like it that's of higher contrast? I don't want to change my whole color scheme. I want to say, okay, like this, but higher contrast. Now we need a tool where we can plug in the hex code and figure out how to make the contrast higher. This part is even more fun. I found a site called HTML Color Codes that works great. You enter a hex code and it shows you the color you've entered. It also gives you sliders for opacity and hue, saturation, and light. But the coolest thing is you can ask it, simply lighten or darken this color by a specific percentage. So let's say I want my red, which is A94346, to be 10% darker. This tool at HTML Color Codes spits out 902A2D. Well, to save time inching up on what, which one's the highest contrast, this tool gives you 20, 30, 40, 50, and 70% darker or lighter as shades and tints from which you can choose. It's perfect. So now... I'm armed with the right code to get it darker. I can finally go into my style sheet as Helma wanted me to way back at the beginning and figure out which font to change to the new and improved contrast color. Okay, you think by this time I'd been exhausted, but I was having a blast. Look at how much I'm learning. This is awesome. Plus, I've only told you about the problems with contrast. The Wave tool also found a few more things wrong. This is where it gets really embarrassing. Well, no, no, this one isn't as embarrassing. The tool showed me what it called long alt text as a failure. So remember, alt text is what gets read out by screen readers when you're on an image. On podfeed.com's homepage, I have little images for each of the types of tutorials I've created. The last tutorial section's alt tag said, two little cartoon kids holding hands, wearing backpacks, and carrying pencils, one of my favorite images. Apparently that was too long, but I thought it was fun. Fine, I shortened it. I always thought longer was better, but I guess not. Maybe you don't want to hear me blathering on. I don't know. I like to throw in little Easter eggs like that once in a while for the screen readers. Okay, but the really embarrassing thing the Wave tool discovered was that in building my homepage, I had used the wrong widget from my theme vendor's layout builder tools for one row of image icons. The rows for listen to the podcast tutorials and join the conversation were all done with one type of widget, and that was fine. But I used a different widget for the support the show row of icons. 
So you know the one where it shows you to pledge support via Patreon, shop versus a- via Amazon, donate via PayPal, or record your own review? Well, the widget I chose simply does not have the option to enter an alt tag for those images. So I never even noticed that I'd missed it. How embarrassing is that? Remember I started out at the beginning? Pride goeth before a fall? Yeah, that's where I really failed. So I dusted off my muscles on how those widgets work, and I got that fixed. So now there are alt tags on there. So you can go push that that Patreon button, because now you can actually see it. Well, I also need to fix the contrast on the date, the author of the blog post, and my asides are a bit low on contrast as well. And there's a pesky missing form input label, apparently. I got to go track that down. That's going to be fun to go hunting for those too. I know you think it's weird that I'm calling this whole thing fun, but it really was fun. I got to learn more about what's important in accessibility. I got to run new tools. I got to make podfeed.com a better place for everyone. I'm really glad I read the Web AI A Million report. I wouldn't have learned so much and been able to improve my site for all of you. Well, it's not holiday buying season anymore, but it is the season to buy things for yourself. Did you know that if you use the Amazon affiliate links in the show notes to products I talk about, you know, all the geeky stuff you want to buy anyway, if you go and use those links, a small percentage of what you buy goes to fund the podcast. Remember all of those docs I just talked about? Every one of them is linked in the show notes to their Amazon pages. Even if you don't buy a doc, if you follow those links and then, I don't know, you go buy Birdseed right after clicking the link, it still goes to help the show. I sincerely appreciate all of you who do your shopping through these links because it makes a huge difference to me. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. How are you doing today this week, Bart? I am doing fine. I'm mildly cranky that the Irish weather gods have decided that winter was insufficient and we should have take two of winter. Have a little more. Yeah, it's like I I, I had to dig the sc- my skull cap back out for cycling this week. It's like, but I haven't needed you in weeks. Well, I can officially complain about the weather. And it'll it'll Ooh. be in the context of oh shut up Allison, but still, Los Angeles two millimeters of rain. Well, that uh, no, it actually has been raining quite a bit. Los Angeles did not hit seventy degrees in all of February for the first time in wait for it forever. Well, as far as far as records go, right. I'm sure the time right. Well, we <laughs> so, at some point in the last ice age, yeah, I mean, but I'm I mean sure. ever. Wow. Ever. I mean, if it's so ever. Y- y- your state's carbon footprint has just gone through the roof then because all of you guys are like, what do we do? Turn up the heat. Turn up the heat. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Well, it, but we don't go inside. We're not going outside either. You know, it's freezing out there. You know, there's, yeah, but you put on more layers. That's how it works. You don't even own layers. Actually, well, just two t shirts. It doesn't matter if they're the same layer. I had three cycling jerseys on today. <laughs> I needed an extra layer. I suppose. Uh, let's see. I've been trying to find. Let's see. I want to know how much we've gotten because we have gotten a lot of rain for us. I mean, it's. Uh, it's. Uh, let's see. You're going to give a number, and I'm going to say, "Yeah, that was Wednesday." Yeah, I know. You know that. I know, but realize we average, I think, twelve or sixteen inches of rain a year. Um, inches. That's that's oh, a wait, year. No. That's, not not a week, yeah, okay. not a month, might, a year. So when you suddenly have an environment that isn't built for water, uh, I don't think I can find it. Nuts. 
All right. Well, this isn't the weather report. No, we, we, you, if, someday we should do a podcast. If, anyway, if I blurred out, we actually if have, I blurred out some inches, all of a sudden, that's the answer to the question. <laughs> noted. Uh, actually, we have quite a, we've quite a full agenda, so we probably should get stuck all in. Right. Three, three mediums. Uh-oh. Uh, but before we get to do any mediums, we get to do some follow-up. So the ongoing, never-ending, it-will-never-die specter and meltdown saga continues. Google uh, security researchers released a report basically coming to the conclusion that software is never going to be able to fix Spectre-type bugs. So we really do have to rethink this. And basically, this problem is just not going to go away for quite some time. So that was a cheery and optimistic assessment from Google. Uh, Australia's controversial anti-encryption law is continuing to have a fallout. Uh, Mozilla are very worried by one of the, by the phraseology in one of the um, articles in the law, which appears to imply that the orders can be given not to companies, but to individual employees. What orders? So Mozilla is basically saying this law could potentially turn our employees against us by legal mandate of their government. Really, you know, if you want us to do something, you should be mandating us, not our employees. Okay, I don't know what the orders would be. What you mean by orders? Uh, So the law allows them to, to compel an entity, which in this case appears to be potentially a person, to break encryption. <laughs> okay. That's the whole point of this law, remember? Uh, well, I, there's a lot of laws out there, Bart, trying to keep up. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, there's different levels of laws, but there's different levels of orders. There's three different levels of order. We, yeah, It's in security bits from a while ago, so people can go back and read this. Right. But basically, the problem is it's very difficult for a company to properly respond if it's possible that they don't know what their employees have been ordered to do. That That's deeply undermining and deeply unfair. So if you're going to have due process, it really should be clarified with an amendment that the order is against the company, not against individual staff members. So I think Mozilla are absolutely right to bang that drum. Uh, and Fastmail are basically saying, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, this is too bad. Really? So Just, We're not going to be in Australia if you do this. I, th- I think that's what they said. Wow. The headline isn't particularly useful. I'm pretty sure. Uh, anyway, yeah, they're. I shouldn't hang you up on this. The companies are not. Home. Yeah, companies are just not happy with this. Because, but we knew it was half baked when it came out. There were many, many experts saying you can't vote on this yet. You haven't finished writing the law properly. But that didn't stop them. Off they went. So yeah. Uh, so do you remember those charming Celebrite people and the whole big hoo ha about you know backdoors mandated into iPhones and then somehow magically the FBI got into the San Bernardino phone and we all think it was probably Celebrite who did yeah. it for them. But it'd be okay to have backdoors because they'd never get leaked out unless you had $100 and you could find eBay. <laughs> now, apparently these were old models, so they can't crack a modern iPhone. They can only crack older iPhones, but that kind of doesn't really mollify me very much. Yeah, you go, the fact you guys had a are, good discussion on this on Let's Talk Apple this week, so that's probably a good source to get more. You guys really dug into that topic. We we did, actually, because, yeah, Simon Parnell actually had some pretty second-hand experience, not first-hand, but basically a person he knows is in law enforcement and was able to give an insight I hadn't actually had before. So, no, we had a good chat. So, th- thank you, Alison. That's a, <laughs> a good way to plug. Let's-talk.ie. And, and keep us moving for so we can do our security. And keep us moving. 
the other thing we had talked about last time was a bug found in the keychain. Uh, we told everyone not to set their hair on fire because the only way to exploit this bug is to already have malware running on your computer. So if that's true, you have a bigger problem. But nonetheless, we do want Apple to fix these things because we prefer to have a belt and suspenders instead of just a belt. Uh, and at the time, the security researcher basically showed a, showed his attack in action and then refused to give Apple the details because they don't have a bug bounty program. Uh, he apparently decided that, okay, they still don't have a bug bounty program, but you know something, maybe I should do the right thing and give them the details. So Apple now have the details, so I imagine a patch is on the way. Yeah, that's good. By the way, 40% increase in rain over our, the normal uh, amount of rain. Well, that's enough to cause trouble. <laughs> That That is definitely enough to cause trouble. Okay. So, first security medium, because every bug has to have a fun new name. We now have Thunderclap. So, security researchers have shone a light on one of the dangers that comes along with the move to USB-C. Uh, so, the USB-C connector is a connector rather than a protocol. So, USB-C, the it's physical connector, can carry... Lots of, exactly, can carry lots of different data protocols and stuff, including USB 3, uh, but also Thunderbolt. Right. And Thunderbolt is amazingly quick. And the way it manages to be amazingly quick is because it relies on a technique called direct memory access, or DMA. If that's ringing a bell deep down in the back of your head somewhere, that's because that was what made Firewire do its magic as well. And that's also at the root of one of the biggest security problems with FireWire. If you wanted to hack a Mac, you basically shoved a special dongle into its FireWire port and it could just read all of your memory because direct memory access does exactly what it says on the tin. So it means that a FireWire and a Thunderbolt peripheral can read and write to memory without the OS getting in the way. They have direct Mm. memory access. Okay. So in the days of full disk encryption, this is problematic because for your machine to be able to read from disk, it must have a copy of the decryption key in memory. And mm-hmm. Thunderbolt has direct memory access. So if someone creates a malicious Thunderbolt device, it can suck that key out and give it to the bad guy somehow. Now, you might imagine that given that we knew this was a problem with Thunderbolt and that we, sorry, not with Thunderbolt, with Firewire, that someone would have thought about this and we'd have a solution. And you'll be imagining correctly. So we have thought about it. There is now a thing, which is a chip which your motherboard may or may not contain, called an input-output memory management unit. And that's a mouthful, but it has an abbreviation that's also a mouthful, an IOMMU. I'm not sure that's any easier to say than input-output memory management unit. Maybe if you said it slowly, IOMMU. So this chip, if it's present on your motherboard, is designed to basically firewall DMA so that the Thunderbolt DMA can only write and read the bits of RAM that have been assigned to Thunderbolt by the OS and then whatever else you might have that need a DMA, some other, you know, ESAT or God knows what else you have on your machine. Basically, this this chip would make sure that you didn't get to stomp outside of, you you still have direct memory access, but only to the bits you've been directly given access to by the OS. So it's a partnership between the OS and this chip. And if every, if every OS supported these chips, and if every PC had these chips, then this really wouldn't be such a problem. But you can see where this conversation is going, I'm sure. I'm, I'm... Lots of people save money by not putting these chips on their devices. Now, 
Apple don't skimp and don't cut corners. So the good news for Apple users is that all modern Macs which have Thunderbolt 3 have one of these chips and modern versions of Mac OS support these chips. So of just, all the OS... It was, it was uh, Apple and Intel who developed Thunderbolt, right? Did I get the right one? Well, or license you, or yeah, something. definitely Intel. Def, in, Intel is definitely where it came from. And I, the level of involvement of, of Apple, I'm not sure of, but Apple were certainly one of the early partners. I know in for a that. fact that you, the reason docs took so long to come out with is they had to, all the manufacturers have to get approval from both companies. Huh. So okay. there's, there's something about, um, Apple being involved. Uh, but is that just because it's an MFI program? No. Thunderbolt than, is the brand is name the, of a hardware interface developed by Intel in collaboration with Apple that allows a connection of external peripherals to a computer. Okay. That's from... Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So it makes sense Basically, the good news is... Right? Yeah, and they're also not known for cutting corners. Like mm-hmm. they, they tend to use, you know, good solid state drives and good RAM and good motherboards. Like they don't tend to cut corners. So I'm not at all surprised. Um, There's got to be good Windows manufacturers too that are uh, certainly that would have there are, Sure there are. But the thing is, how do you, it's not going to be written on the back of the box and easy to find writing that it has an IOMMU. And what's way, 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 way worse is Microsoft's approach to this. They consider it to be an enterprise feature. So if you have... A, basically, if you don't have Windows 10, 100% guaranteed no support for an IOMMU. If you have Windows 10, even if you have Windows 10 Pro, you don't have this. However, if you have Windows 10 Enterprise, you do have this. So even so if even the saying, Pro version doesn't get it. Even if your hardware supports it. Yep. The OS has to tell the hardware, I am assigning this range of memory to this interrupt or whatever way that the hardware is addressed in hardware IRQ, God only knows what they're called these days but you get the idea. So it's a cooperation between the chip and the OS. Basically the OS says, dear Mr. Chip, I would now like you to put your policeman's hat on and watch that guy. He gets to write here, here and here. And the chip goes, sir, yes sir and it enforces that rule thereby preventing Thunderbolt from writing and reading bits of RAM it shouldn't have access to. But if the OS doesn't instruct the IOMMU to put its policeman's hat on, it doesn't know what to do. So all it can do is idly stand by and say, okay, fine, you may access all of memory because I've no idea how to restrict you. So (laughs) I'm having trouble grokking. No Windows machines running anything lower than uh, enterprise version of Windows have this protection. No, no Windows PC running anything less than an enterprise version of Windows 10. Oh, okay. Sorry, narrow it down. Windows 10. Yikes. So, yeah. How how bad is this threat though? We always like to balance threat and and rate. Right. So, the advice we have always given people is don't shove stuff into your USB port. Well, this is still a USB port, so don't shove stuff into your USB port. Well, so I go to That's I it. go to Amazon and I want to buy a Thunderbolt or a USB-C cable and I only care about USB. I don't care about Thunderbolt speeds. And I'm going to talk to a bunch about this on the podcast right before people hear this. So I won't repeat it, but I only want USB-C, uh, USB. I just buy a cheap cable. Am I in danger? Because there's no, whatever. Yes, if you, but whatever's yes, on the other if end you buy is a cheap- something I'm putting on it. 
Right, but the cable in Thunderbolt, or and indeed in, in, in USB-C, the cable has brains too, which is why they're so bloody expensive. If you're buying something from a cheap Chinese manufacturer for a ridiculously low price that doesn't make economic sense, then yes, you're in danger. Well, but the cable itself? Yep. The cable has a USB port. We just talked last week about a malicious cable that sent your keystrokes over Wi-Fi, remember? Oops. You're right. Huh. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) So... You're taking a, the risk is never zero. The risk is never zero about anything. But if you stick to, to, the biggest danger isn't going to be something you buy on Amazon. The biggest danger is going to be something that gets handed to you at a conference mm. or something. Like, they're, they're, it's going to be the kind of thing where they're trying to get you, most probably, as opposed to just randomly trying to do things. Yeah. Okay. So the real world danger isn't particularly high unless you're a high value target. And I certainly wouldn't accept, I would never plug something I was handed at a conference into my device. I'll take a coffee cup. I will not take anything that has a plug. You know, I ran a virus scanning software for a long time, the Clamex AV, and I used it to mm. scan and then erase my uh, the thumb drives I would get from conferences. That deals with software level problems. It doesn't deal with any of the bad USB hardware issues with USB, yeah. and it doesn't protect in any way against hardware issues at all. So... You're fixing a problem. Okay. But actually, the problems are way deeper than that. So, sorry. Okay. No, that's good to know. I'm glad I asked for the distinction there. Hmm. So, that's yeah, why don't say your hair on nice fire. things. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, yeah. So, yeah, I'm afraid to say, you know, continue the advice of to plug random stuff into your computer, and this really is very, very unlikely to affect you. So, don't set your hair on fire. Okay. Next, next up then, security medium two. Well, hang on, Boogie hang cow. on. I stopped you before you you talked about something that was in here. You said uh, right after you talked about Windows oh, ten yes. non enterprise not being uh, covered. You've got another section there. Yeah. So the, the the there were some issues. So while the Mac is much safer by design, that doesn't mean that the Mac is free of software bugs because it was written by human beings and human beings make mistakes. So there actually was an issue with the way macOS addressed certain Ethernet drivers over Thunderbolt, and that was responsibly disclosed to Apple by these security researchers, and Apple have patched that already before this was announced to the public. Uh, So there will never be any more bugs in Thunderbolt then, right? (laughs) Yes, because that's exactly how it works when human (laughs) beings are involved. The researchers are basically saying there's probably more, right? You know, we've we've hit... We've nailed down the ones we know about, but there's likely to be more similar bugs yet to be discovered in Thunderbolt. But Mac users are definitely in a better place than Windows users here. Okay. Okay, so, security medium two, buggy cow. (laughs) Again, have to have a cool name. If you don't have a cool name, it doesn't count. And it's actually a very clever name. Um, Anyway, so Google's Project Zero have published the details of a kernel bug in macOS, and they've named it buggy cow. And as we record this, there is no patch available. So it is absolutely a zero-day bug. What the bug does is it allows privilege escalation. So some malicious software running on your Mac. Already we have a, we, we have a, this is why you're not setting your hair on fire point here, right? For this to be attacked by this, there must already be malware on your Mac. So if there's already malware on your Mac, you already have a bigger problem than this. 
However, so assuming there's malware on your Mac and that malware does not have root slash admin privileges because let's say it's a bug in some app you've downloaded and that app is running as you, so the malware only has your permissions. What this bug allows that malware to do is to escalate its privileges to full root level using a bug in Apple's memory management and specifically in a very common optimization called copy on write. We've heard about that before. Cow. Yeah, it's a very common technique where when you need to clone something, you don't actually copy it. You just say to both processes that need a copy of this piece of memory or this piece of disk or this piece of data of any sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think you have your own copy and you think you have your own copy, but actually it's the one copy. And only the first time someone tries to alter the copy do you actually make a copy, which is why it's called copy on write. So we pretend to copy it while everyone's just reading. And then the first time anyone writes and say, okay, fine, I guess we will actually copy it for you. And in reality, there's so much more reading done than writing done that copy on write is a very big saver of resources. So it's an extremely common technique. And in this case, there's just a bug in Apple's implementation of copy and write in their memory manager. And therefore, this buggy copy on write or buggy cow allows this privilege escalation vulnerability. It's a clever name. So the reason we don't set our hair on fire is because this bug is only going to be exploitable by malware running on your computer. However, that's not a reason for Apple not to take this seriously because a privilege escalation bug is not much use on its own. But it's a very useful tool in what's called an exploit chain. So because there's like all of our OSs now have the sort of belt and suspenders approach to security. So it's very rare to find one bug that gives that gets you from zero to remote code execution. What you tend to have to do is piece together your 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 exploit through lots of little bugs. So you find a bug that allows remote code execution, but that code execution is running as an unprivileged user. Okay, so now you've got to go hunting. How do I find a way around that? And then you find another bug that gives you privilege escalation. And now you put those two together and now you have remote code execution as root. So this buggy cow would be useful to combine with other bugs to make a more powerful, you know, more powerful than the sum of its parts kind of a bug. If that makes sense. Yeah. So basically, Apple do need to fix it, but you don't need to set your hair on fire. How do you feel about Google announcing this after the 90 days? They actually gave them more than the 90 days. They gave them 96 for some Did reason. they really? Okay. Mm. I In this case, I think Apple just... They're not... Sometimes they surprise me and do really good on these things. And then they're very schizophrenic when it comes to the response to security bugs. Sometimes they're amazing and you can hold them up as a wonderful example how you learn from your mistakes and how you do things right. And then the next time they come along and they they just say, what bug? What bug? What are you talking about? 90 days? What? <laughs> you should have told us. I never can tell. Yeah, it's I, you never can tell how they're going to respond. In this case, I don't think they've done well. Security medium three then. Um, I've sort of mushed together a bunch of related stories for this one because I don't see how else we can talk about it sensibly. But the the main thrust here, what broke yesterday, or was it the day before, what broke very recently is that Mark Zuckerberg released a long and detailed note on Facebook um, describing his vision for an aspect of Facebook's future. And the, the link is in the show notes. You can read the full uh, the full article. Um but 
it's been misinterpreted in lots of different ways. So the thing I want to hammer home here is that what Mark Zuckerberg is describing in his article is his vision for how private messaging will work in Facebook's extended ecosystem. And that what he's describing is actually very good, but he's not describing how Facebook will work. He's describing how private messaging within Facebook's extended family of apps and services will work. So this is a subset of Facebook. So some people are reporting this as, I think I saw one person say, I mean, why hasn't the stock collapsed if Facebook are going to be completely private and have no more data? It's like, you didn't actually read what Mark Zuckerberg wrote, did you? So he's basically, when it comes to private messaging, Facebook are going to, over the next couple of years, evolve their services so that they approach six ideals, six visions. Um, so it's, um, ah, I had them written down somewhere. I lost them. No, because I don't remember them. Um, sorry, bear with me a moment. Mark Zuckerberg, where's your link? I'm pleasantly surprised you don't have to have a Facebook account to read these, because I was expecting when I clicked the Facebook link that it would say, sorry, you can't read yeah. this. But I was able to read it without having a Facebook account. So the first thing is private interactions. In other words, your private messaging should be private. Encryption. We want to end, encry end encrypt your private messaging. Reduce permanence. We, If you share stuff in the private context, we will not keep it forever. That's good. Safety. People should basically know what's going on, who they're talking to, interoperability, which made my my ears perk up. It's like, ooh, interoperability. Yeah, within Facebook's ecosystem. <laughs> so in other words, Just WhatsApp will interoperate with Facebook Messenger, and which is actually a privacy negative, not a positive. So right. that, that my ears perked down again quite quickly. Uh, now, there actually, there's a silver lining here, though, because we knew this was coming. And what he makes clear in this letter is that it is going to be opt-in, and so that if you want to, you can keep your identity separate, even as this moves forward. Wait, between so that, the three We didn't know that. Mean? Yes. Really? So you will get to... Yes, that's explicitly really? in in the extended letter. So they're going to change I the back end very carefully. to be the same. How are you going to keep it different? Uh, okay, so every web server on the planet uses HTTP, but that doesn't mean that stuff that you're... Actually, no, better example. I use WordPress, you use WordPress. Your WordPress account doesn't work on my blog. Correct. But that's... So they're both WordPress, but they're not interoperable. So while Facebook may, may have multiple instances of the same code base, mm -hmm. and they may have a federated model where they can federate if they want to, like you can have an account with Facebook.com that allows you to log into multiple blogs with one central account, you don't have to. Am I allowed to say I don't trust him? Oh, absolutely. Completely allowed to say that. Totally allowed to say that. But okay. from a theoretical computer science point of view, nothing he is saying raises like, well, it can't possibly be true. It could be true. That's not saying it is true. Right, okay. But it could be, right? So, look, at least... They're setting out with good aims. How it goes, we shall see. And then the last point is secure data storage. So he's basically, I mean, the, the analogy he uses is that Facebook is really good at being the town square. We also want to get good at being the family sitting room. 
not we want to replace the town square with a family sitting room. We want to also have a family sitting room. And this is describing how Facebook will implement this imaginary family sitting room. And they're not bad aspirations at all. And the whole post is, well, okay, so the whole post is full of weasel words, like, we'll have to make compromises. So right here, while announcing these wonderful lofty goals, they're immediately saying, and we're going to compromise on all of these. (laughs) But we'll ask for expert advice on how we compromise. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's much more positive than I was expecting. But we're only describing the evolution over many years of an aspect of Facebook. This doesn't actually change anything from a big picture point of view. Facebook's business model remains collecting all the information they can so they can sell your attention to advertisers. What's changed is the that they can, right? If you look at Facebook's incentives, they're incentivized to gather as much data as will not drive people away from their platform, but no more. And with the year they've had, the as much data as people will let you get away with has shifted. And if Facebook hadn't responded to that, people would have continued to leave. So this is just Facebook realigning themselves with the incentive to make sure that people are not so uncomfortable they leave. So Zuckerberg well, research is now saying they have lost millions of users. So finally, I did see that actually. So yeah. finally, the numbers are starting to maybe make a difference to him. I mean, basically, and Facebook are good at reading what's the reading of the writing on the wall, right? Facebook know what's going on better than the the security the researchers who were able to write that story this week to say that they have seen in their numbers. Facebook would have known that months and months and months ago. Hang on, uh, Edison I mean, Research found an estimated 15 million users in the U.S. alone have fled the platform over the last mm-hmm. year yeah. compared to 2017. That's just the U.S. and a lot of people left with GDPR changes, right, in Europe. Uh, I don't know if people left. Facebook reorganized things. I don't know mm-hmm. if GDPR drove people out. But, I I mean, the, look, the year Facebook have had with, between Cambridge Analytica and all the other who had they've been up to, I am not surprised. I am. And I didn't think if, people would actually go. I think people would just go, uh, and then stay. That's good. It is good. And it explains the incentives for, for Facebook making a course correction. Okay, here we go. Facebook but loses a million users in no, Europe, according to the Irish Examiner in October of 2018. Okay, good. A million daily and good. monthly active users. That's in Europe alone. Yeah, I mean, look, Facebook are still huge and will continue to be huge, right? But if anyone's thinking, oh, great, Facebook is no longer, you know, Facebook's business model is now completely changed and we don't have to worry about our privacy. <laughs> no, Facebook's business model has not actually changed at all. They are still Dysons of data and they monetize your, pers- basically they monetize your privacy to sell ads to you. It's your attention that is for sale. Can I so start that hasn't calling changed. my Dyson the Facebook of vacuums? <laughs> if you like. <laughs> I just I, th- I think Ken is de- I love Ken's choice of Dyson's of data. I think it's such a cool phrase. Yeah. Well, they haven't done anything bad lately, have they, Bart? Like I don't know. Yeah, this as, as if to undermine, as if to underline my point, right? So the reason I say this is a, co- a collection of many stories. So what would have been in the show notes had Zuckerberg not released this great big note f- the, the day before yesterday? What would have been in the show notes were two stories, and each of them individually wouldn't have made a security medium. There would have just been bullet points in the news. So first we learned that 
I mean, one of the ways Facebook gathers data, and Facebook gathered data from amazingly many different sources, right? We know they get it from what you type into Facebook. I don't think anyone is surprised to learn that if you type it into a Facebook window, Facebook get it, right? That doesn't surprise anyone. But what may surprise more people is that every single web page where you see a Facebook like button, Facebook know you were there. Whether you're logged into Facebook or not, whether you have a Facebook account or not, it's all collected. And Facebook are extremely skilled they basically collect all this information as shards of disconnected data and they look for clues to connect the shards. And one of the one of the clues I only discovered I only learned about today, which is fiendishly bloody clever. Um if you're the kind of person who doesn't always browse with their browser window maximized, I have a 27-inch iMac, I do not browse with my browser windows maximized, you have resized those windows. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that someone sharing your IP address and your exact window dimensions are you? Excruciatingly high. Yeah. So as you browse from website to website, we can connect those shards very easily indeed. Wow. That's fascinating. So they're just... It is fascinating, and that there's, there's actually I'm gonna I didn't put it in the show notes because it's not coming until Firefox 67, but in Firefox 67 they're actually putting in a feature where when you resize the Firefox window they're going to put letterboxes to always make the actual size reported to the website be an exact equal or an exact multiplier of 100 pixels. Oh, interesting! I like it. So all of a sudden that just collapses in. There's now thousands and thousands and thousands of people with a 500 pixel widescreen instead of you know. So they're Killing Whack-a-mole. those signals for browser fingerprinting, yeah. But it's it's basically browser fingerprinting. You know, the exact arrangement of fonts that you have installed, the exact number of plugins you have installed, all these signals leak out. And so even if you have all sorts of cookie blockers, they still manage to connect the bloody shards. So, so Bart, Facebook oh, are building up... A while ago, you told us about uh, how Apple has made it where the only thing our uh, Safari web browser is sending forward is, yep, it's Safari. And nothing else about it is—is is this something? It's not quite nothing. They've what they, what Apple have done is again they've changed the signal to noise ratio. Basically, what they've said is we're only going to report the standard Mac system fonts. We're not going to report any additional fonts you have. Installed. But I haven't put so that my question out yet. Signal. My question was going to be: Does does the Safari browser report how big the window is? Yes. Okay. Just for now, yeah. I, I imagine Firefox are about to learn. So the trick about the letterboxing the window size actually comes from the Tor browser, and the Tor browser is a port to Firefox. So Firefox basically, they can just you know the, the code, joy right? of open source yeah. is Firefox basically went, oh you cloned from us, well we're going to clone that back from you. Thanks very much. Yeah. And now that it's now that this is on the roadmap for Firefox sixty seven, I imagine the people in uh, the WebKit project have got oh great idea. So I imagine it will come to Safari too. Yeah. But it is a constant cat and mouse game, right? So they keep on finding these signals to connect the shards. And so we don't realize that as we browse the web, even when we're logged out of Facebook, even if we don't have a Facebook account at all, that these dark profiles are still being collected about us. And that's already bad enough. But there's a third layer that almost no one knows. So Facebook have a back-end API which app developers can use to shove data into Facebook, and Facebook incentivize them to use this API in various ways. So as you're using apps that you don't sign into at Facebook, that you don't in any way know have any relationship whatsoever with Facebook, they, they're they probably apps that show ads, but no guarantee, but that's more likely than not. Either way, it doesn't matter. The point is there's this back-end API where Facebook accepts data from 
random apps developed by random developers. And we never think about that. So these could be apps that don't have a Facebook icon anywhere in sight. They don't make a login with Facebook, but they're still reporting back to Facebook and tying it to, say, your email address or your cell phone number. Again, the shards get reconnected. Uh, I wasn't aware of this at all, but this completely made the news in the last two weeks because some security researchers basically spied on what these apps were gathering and sending back to this Facebook API and their jaw sort of hit the floor when they realized that developers were sending astonishingly personal information back to Facebook. Um, Ranging from a heart monitoring app on iOS, the most popular heart monitoring app on iOS, reporting your heart rate back to Facebook pretty much within seconds of every measurement being taken. That's kind of creepy. But unfortunately, there's an app called Flow, which is a menstrual cycle tracker, which is used which is used by women all over the world for health reasons and to aid family planning. Mm-hmm. That app is reporting back to Facebook. <sighs> By the way, How by the way I'm going to give an, another get? plug for Let's Talk Apple. You guys talked about that. And by guys, I mean guys. He had There were three of men on the call. And I was ready with my fingers over my phone to write back about how terrible you guys handle this. You should have had a woman on the show. You guys were fabulous. You guys were respectful. And and I, I mean, I could not have... I would not have done a good as good of a job of being respectful about what that actually means to people. I mean, that was it was amazing. I meant to I call am, you and tell you, and now I got to do it publicly. I am so relieved because I really wanted to make sure we did that story oh, yeah. justice. So and, and you trusted so your co-host to, to be as as uh, adult and intelligent and respectful as you are. So that was uh, that was really good, Bart. I was. I was ready to be mad, you know, because I'm like that. And I was like, oh, they're going to screw this up. And you didn't. It was, it was beautiful. It was really well done. Uh, well, thank you. And I was aware it was a minefield that was trotting in. So I was being careful. Yeah. So I have, I have a, a contrary weird opinion on all of this. If you leave Facebook because they're creepy and disgusting and their business practices are abhorrent, you now don't have access to Facebook, but they still have access to you. So you only lose. That is lose. entirely correct. You only lose. Yeah. Might as well stay on Facebook. Might as well have a good old time because they're going to get your data anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm an antisocial person. So. <laughs> but it, I, I find the data spigot in modern life is already too full, so I'm not opening the fire hose of Facebook. Oh, right, 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 right. But I mean, I've I've seriously comp- contemplated it in the in the last while, and I d- there's no benefit to leaving. There's another advantage to staying, Alison, which it it, it it goes against every fiber of my being to say you should stay on Facebook, but you should stay on Facebook because it make if you have an account on Facebook, it be it's much harder for someone to pretend to be you and impersonate you on Facebook. <laughs> there is a school of thought that if you have a public face, you should have an account everywhere. Mm. Choose not to use it if you like, but claim your identity everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and this is advice I know, and this is advice I understand, and this is advice I think is <laughs> probably good advice. And this is advice I'm continuing not to take. <laughs> by the way, it's not impossible to have someone fake your identity. It happens all the time on Facebook. By the way, that is a, a yes, exactly. common problem where so, people I'll get an email from somebody saying, "Hey, or a connect connect with me on Facebook," and it's somebody I'm already connected to. Yeah, but having having a real Allison profile 
makes these things more suspicious. If there's two of them, it's like, well, hang on a sec. Yeah. But if there's only one of them and it's a fake one, that's much, much harder to figure out. Yeah. And that is an issue. And it's also an issue on professional sites like LinkedIn, mm, um, yeah. where it could really cost you. So there is a school of thought that you should sign up to every one of these social media sites, create an account, and then proceed to not use it. <laughs> but have it. Anyway, so this was then revealed by the reporters and Facebook's answer was, oh, we had no idea this was going on. And I'm thinking, your core business model, your core competency is being Dyson's of data. I I'm gonna back you up really do quick. not find this credible. I, we talked a whole bunch about other stuff. What you're talking about is all of these apps that are reporting back information to Facebook, mm. even though you never logged in or anything like that. Yeah, and so for a start, these apps are writing to an API. If I write to an API information that API is not designed to accept, it doesn't work. That's how computers work. An API won't accept any old garbage. If you're saying, I want to write some heart rate data and the API has no idea what to do with heart rate data, you'll get back a 500 internal server error or a 200, or a, sorry, a uh, 50-something bad request error. Mm-hmm. Like, you're it, it, if the API is accepting the data, then there's a place to write it. Facebook's entire business model is about analyzing and understanding data. I do not believe they didn't know it was coming in. That That is just astonishing to me. They don't have an API that they're encouraging people to write to and that they have no idea what's being written to the API. What? Anyway, so they tried to throw the developers under the bus, mm-hmm. which is charming of them. <laughs> um, so that's one story. Uh, and then another story, which is very much connected to all of this, connecting the shards together. So we keep telling people to sign up for two-factor auth because it's really important to protect yourself. And we do tell people that, if at all possible, don't use SMS, use a one-time password, OTP kind of authenticator code stuff instead. But if, you know, SMS-based two-factor auth is still better than no two-factor auth. And the one thing you really don't want when you're trying to push this message that everyone should be using two-factor auth is for some giant mega corporation to throw a great big pile of suspicion of two-factor authentication into the mix by, say, abusing those phone numbers. And, of course, that's exactly what Facebook are doing. If you use your phone number to for two-factor auth, Facebook will start to match you against that phone number. And so if anyone else has that phone number in their address book and they let Facebook at their address book, Facebook will recommend you connect to each other. They basically treat it as if you had volunteered your phone number to Facebook in the normal way, this is one which of those, is despicable. It's, it's hard to – one of those things where you keep saying this is the worst thing they've done. This one's in the worst category to me. I mean – I would agree with you. Now, I checked mine immediately to quadruple check to make sure I had not given my phone number to them in any way, shape, or form, and I have not. Uh, and they do allow two-factor authentication without using your phone number. So if you have your phone number in there, take it out. Use two-factor. Use a real two-factor. But of course, at this stage, that phone number is now permanently connected to your account. Like any shards with that mm-hmm. phone number shows up again. Yeah, also Facebook, uh, I forgot to say as well, they also have arrangement with actual real physical world shops. And so if you use your email address at Target or whatever, and Facebook know that's your email address, or if they can connect you via phone number, they have arrangement with certain financial institutions where they get to connect the shards. It is astonishing what they can connect together based on email addresses, IP addresses, screen resolutions, apps you use. Mm. It all gets connected together into this massive profile of you, even if you don't have a Facebook account. It's horrific. 
So you, and none of that changes. You trust because him Facebook are going to end-to-end encrypt. You trust him when he says he's not going to allow the uh, the uh, three different chat apps to communicate with each other. You can keep your identity separate. To be honest, I do because he doesn't need that data. He still has all of this stuff we've just described. Nothing, nothing in this week's. We're going to be good when it comes to private messaging changes. Anything I've been talking about for the last ten minutes. Hmm. So that's why this is not. This is why you shouldn't sell your Facebook stock. It doesn't actually change anything. It's just that you actually probably can do actual private messaging on this platform, as well as all the other creepy stuff yeah, it's I don't doing trust anyway. Him. I don't trust him. But... I'm not saying I trust him, but okay. even if we take him on his word, it's even if we believe he's a hundred percent genuine, it still doesn't change anything, mm-hmm. and that's a bit tragic. <laughs> kind of very tragic, really. Anyway, so that's our security mediums out of the way. Whew. We're cranky today, Bart. (laughs) We are a bit. Um, If you want my more detailed, coherent thoughts, I have a blog post on... We're going to do a chit-chat on it. No, no, that's not the one I'm talking about. I have a blog post specifically on Facebook. Ah, okay. So basically my thoughts on Zuckerberg's post. Um, And then we we have a whole, whole fun conversation planned for next week. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Chit-chat. That should be good fun. Yes. So that can mean I get to be a chit-chat like? Yes, you are going to be a chit-chat like. Yay! I had fun with Dave Hamilton when I said, uh, you know, after we'd gone deep and nerdy about counting antennas and phased arrays and stuff, I said, yeah, by the way, this is chit-chat light in my world. <laughs> by the way, since we're praising each other's shows, I really got a lot out of that episode. I My understanding of like the TCP IP level, you know, the, basically the networking level of Wi-Fi is very detailed. My understanding of the physical antennas and all that jazz. Oh, uh, no idea. I had no idea what uh, half of these things were, and it was really good to hear them explain. I learned an awful lot, so that was a very fun show. I liked it even better the second time I heard it, because Steve and I listened to it in the car, and it took us Mm -hmm. two hours to listen to that one-hour show, because we kept talking and arguing about terms, because we're engineers and we like to argue anyway. And uh, and he taught me a lot. And there was a, there was a point in that where I was making a very critical error in what I was saying. And I and after Steve explained it to me, it made a lot more sense. So I got a lot out of it the second time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fun show. Notable security updates. Um, there is a zero day bug in Google's Chrome browser, and the advice is update quote right this minute. That was. Two days ago, so hopefully I, I posted about it actually in the Nasilla Castaways chat. I tweeted about it, and it was all over the tech media. So I saw your Chrome tweets users in, update, in the middle update, of update. a TV show. Stopped, grabbed my iPad, used Jump Desktop to log into my Mac upstairs, and fixed it. Oh, yay! Yeah, so, saw it in Slack, by the way. Good, yeah, the Slack is fun. Yeah. Uh, last time we spoke, Adobe had just patched Reader. And since then, they've patched it again because they're patching the patch. So if you think you're patched on Reader, you're not. Go do it again. Okay. Uh, some security researchers have discovered that pretty much every PDF reader that they tested can be fooled into seeing a digital signature that is not valid as being valid, which means that they can, effectively, it means digital signatures are worthless in PDFs until these apps have been patched. Mm -hmm. So just because a PDF has been digitally signed and it passes its validation, don't assume that's gospel. Hmm. At least not for the next while. Thankfully, I don't think it's that heavily used. I don't think we're doing that much stuff with digital signatures, so this 
could be a lot worse if we were heavily dependent on PDF digital signatures for legal contracts and things. But it's not a big thing yet in our world. So probably best we get this kind of stuff out of the way before we start depending on it too heavily. Uh, NVIDIA patched eight security flaws in their various graphics products, so mm. might be a good time to update your graphics driver. The nice thing is, if you update your graphics driver, you usually get better graphics performance too, so your games will go better. So is that that's a good... We, I don't believe I've ever gotten a graphics up driver update on the Mac. You have, but you haven't. Okay, so I don't have to do As it myself. They have been wrong. <laughs> yes, because Apple do the whole widget from hardware to software. Drivers are something they take care of. Okay. You you just get new drivers as part of macOS updates. Don't worry about don't worry your pretty little head about it, Allison. Pretty much, you actually get firmware updates. Yes, through your standard software update process. Like Apple just take care of everything for you because they control the whole widget, okay. which is very useful. But if you're a Windows gamer person. Graphics card updates are definitely something you know about because, like yeah. I say, they generally make your graphics card go better and your games look nicer as well as fixing any security problems. So you're used so to doing good reason it. to update. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and then anyone who is using Cold Fusion, first off, welcome to the 1990s. Fancy joining us in this century. But when you're done having me make snark at you, <laughs> update your server ASAP. Massive big security update, or not security update, security flaw with matching update in Cold Fusion. Yeah. I mean, the company that wrote Cold Fusion is dead, for God's sake. This is, I'm pretty sure Cold Fusion came from Sun Microsystems and was bought into Adobe along with Java. I haven't even heard that name it's, in a long time. No, it's still out there. It refuses to die. Anyway, notable news. Um, security researchers are warning of an as-yet-unpatched, read zero day, issue in how Google's Chrome browser opens PDFs. Now, the good news is... All it does is allow websites to track you around the internet. That's better than remote code execution. And the other bit of good news is it's very easy to avoid. Don't open any PDFs in Chrome for now. Until Chrome is patched, just download the PDF and open it in something else. Yikes. Okay. YouTube have disabled comments on millions of videos of children, thanks to something called Momo, which is basically a giant big hoax. But hey, I'm not, I don't think we need to dwell on Momo. Okay. Goodness knows. That's, well, unless you want me to. No, I just have never heard of it. Don't know what it is. Oh, you're so much better off. Over here in Europe, this was oh, you know, this was a thing. Primary schools in Ireland were telling parents to have a conversation with their kids about Momo. Hmm. And basically, in an attempt not to scare kids, we ended up traumatizing our kids. Because an anecdote was amplified and magnified into a calamity and a catastrophe. Yeah. That's always nice. Yes. Yes. Basically hysteria. Mass hysteria over the side of the pond. UK and Ireland seem to have been the epicenter because it was uh, Northern Ireland is where this, this particular thing got its genesis. Um, Google have followed through on their promise to incorporate Fido 2 into their Chrome browser. So a step closer to hardware-based authentication on websites, which is definitely a nice thing. Hey, we got a uh, shout-out on uh, DTNS. Tom Merritt was talking about Fido and said, if you want to understand about Fido, go listen to uh, uh, Bart Bouchat's talking about it on the No Silicast. So there you go. Yeah. I was thinking, we man, did a I whole should, big thing about I it. I should go back and listen to the, that again. I often need two lessons. <laughs> we should probably stick the link in the show notes, really, shouldn't we? Oh, that means I got to find it. Okay. 
fine. Yeah, I was sort of hoping you would. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, luckily, Fido should be pretty easy to find. I think you've talked about it again, but... Uh... Yeah, the, we, we definitely dedicated a security medium to it because it's actually very cool tech. Um, and yeah, definitely a really positive development that this is now a standard feature in Chrome. It's pretty sure it's it's either in Firefox or it will be darn soon. And the only real holdout that's annoying at the moment is Safari. But Apple could have it ready to go two minutes from now and we wouldn't know about it until they hit go. Because that's Apple's way. Uh, the EFF have launched a new campaign they're calling Hash Fix It Already. And it's basically, they're calling out a whole bunch of tech firms to do a whole bunch of things. So one part of this is actually sort of very clever. Instead of just sort of vaguely saying that tech needs to do better, they're actually saying that you, Facebook, need to do this and you, Apple, need to do that. The only issue I have is that what they want Apple to do may not actually be a good idea. What they want Apple to do is to have full trust no one encryption on the iCloud backups. In other words, the one and only key to your iCloud backup is your iCloud password. If you forget your password, your backups are lost forever. Now, while that's a reasonable thing to have as an opt-in, that is a horrifically bad idea to have backups that can be so easily corrupted for ordinary human beings. So... Yeah, okay, I hope Apple provide this as an option, but I really, really hope Apple also don't make it the default and don't force people to do this because having backups you can't restore from is a catastrophe. Interesting. I'm I'm surprised you went uh went that direction. Well, it's because they're backups, right? I mean I'm not against having the option, but I am absolutely against, you know, sorry, we can't help you, you've lost everything becoming the default. Yeah. That is that is going to do more harm than good. Uh, And then lastly, because I like to always end on a happy. uh, So at a speech at the Mobile World Congress, uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella made a speech which is chock-a-block full of pro-privacy arguments that basically echoed everything Tim Cook has been saying for the last year. So it is really good to see two major leaders in tech thinking about privacy in a non-Facebook sort of way. (laughs) I love Satya Nadella. He's changed my mind. I am such a fan. Microsoft, yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I still get mercilessly slagged for it in work. It's like, you of all people being so pro-Microsoft. It's like, I was never, and you know, I was only against companies that did silly things. And under Steve Ballmer, Microsoft did many, many silly things. Well, you could, Under Satya Nadella, Microsoft is bloody cool. But under Satya Nadella, uh, that, um, what was it, Mumo, something Mumo thing isn't there for the direct memory access? I'm not saying they're perfect. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not saying they're perfect. Uh, Certainly I could critique their licensing model quite a lot. You need a PhD in Microsoft licensing to understand Microsoft licensing. And even then I'm not entirely sure if you do. Yeah. Like we've had extremely high paying, extremely highly paid bill by the hour consultants come in and say, well, last week this was true, but I can't promise you it's true today. I'll have to get back to you tomorrow. (laughs) Bill, 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 bill. Mm. Anyway. Uh, suggested reading. Uh, unfortunately, in the PSA's tips and advice, I need to give you a PSA and not a happy one. Um, if you are a Comcast Xfinity mobile customer, you need to be aware of the fact that it is overly easy to steal your mobile number out from under you, which is obviously a massive problem for SMS-based two-factor authentication and identity theft. You need to set a really strong password on your account's control panel 
because that is all that is protecting your phone from being ported out from under you because to make life easier, Comcast decided that a pin of 00000 for every single customer made sense. Are you and unchangeable. serious? Holy cow. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's too much, too much of a barrier to port your number. Holy cow. Maybe there should be. Yeah, so I didn't even know you could be Comcast Xfinity Mobile, so that's like you're saying it as your ISP for your cellular service. Yeah, hmm. so this is to do with basically changing. Basically, the, the, the danger here is that someone gets to put a different SIM card as your number. Right. Or move your number to a different SIM card. I mean, it's the same thing, but it sounds better when I said it the second way, which means that they then receive your SMS text messages, including your two-factor auths. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Notable piracy breaches. Uh, lots of stuff in here. I don't want to focus too much on it, apart from to say that TikTok were fined 5.7 million over illegal data collection of kids, and that was a record fine. So, good. People should get record fines when they leak data collected on kids. That's that is important. Um, lots of stuff in the news section. I want to jump to opinion and analysis. Um, Naked Security have this wonderful ongoing series called Serious Security, and they have a new installment out called When Randomness Isn't and Why It Matters. Hmm. So they're they're going over really. The, the sort of the theoretical underpinnings of our security and randomness is absolutely crucial to security. And they basically explain why and how, you know, how randomness can go wrong and how we humans aren't particularly good at the random thing. It's, it's again, it's a really good series and this is a good installment. I thought of, of this subject when I was watching the Orville and there's, there's a, uh, I don't know if you're watching that. I am not, but I believe it's very it good. It is spectacularly good. It's it's uh, it's it's very Star Trekky. I I really like it, but also got some good comedy. But there's a character who's like this amoeba sort of guy, and uh, and mm-hmm. he's chosen to go solve this big problem because he can slither into the uh, into the Jeffrey's tube. That's for, this particular one is very small, and they decide that that the only other person who can fit in there is this small child. So he take the goopy guy takes the kid in there and then he says, okay, you go over to that terminal there and just type whatever you want. And that becomes the encryption key. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> the random noise what was would, he said, just push all the buttons in any order you want. <laughs> oh, dear. I liked it, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's a nice plot point, but humans are not good at that. Yeah. Kids better kids, than adults, you know, it'd though. It would be interesting so to see if kids would be, right? Um, another interesting story was bro- came to my attention via Wired. So the do not track thing turned into a giant big flop. We've talked about it many times over the years. The, the concept was that the advertising industry had negotiated with the browser industry that we would have this button that you could push inside your browser, which would set an HTTP header called DNT, do not track. And on the condition that browser manufacturers would default the flag to off so that if it was ever set on, it meant the user had been explicit in choosing, then the advertisers would voluntarily not track people if they saw the flag. And the whole thing just broke down because it was a, it was basically a negotiated agreement between these parties without any sort of formal government backing of any kind, and it just completely fell apart. Mm. Uh, I think, I can't remember if it was Firefox or Microsoft decided the default to on first, at which point the advertisers went, excellent, we were looking for an excuse to get out of this terrible idea, goodbye. And the whole thing collapsed. Well, it turns out it may have a second life with a hell of a lot more teeth. Uh, European Union regulators may actually put it on a legal footing 
and make it a legal requirement that if basically under GDPR, you have to respect do not track. So it may come back only with teeth. Hmm. It's not that is one of the things under consideration in Europe at the moment, which is an interesting idea. Again, there's more stuff in propeller beanies, not going to uh, focus on it now. Let's just say that we have some pallets to cleanse. Uh, for I think we need a good one. And we have three. How's that? Oh, good. So first off, to celebrate International Women's Day, I more have published profiles on four female tech leaders. These are oh, absolutely amazing people and they're lovely profiles. So head over to iMore and have a read. Then uh, a really fun uh, little comic strip was shared by Simon Parnell, who is an Osilla Castaway and a fellow podcaster from the Essential Apple podcast. Um, this is unfortunately one of those comic strips that's oh so true. You see techie nerd guy with beard and glasses saying, for the security... Uh, we said we'd hire someone too. And then, you know, young baby face manager, hold on, that's not the priority. Let's get the project started first. We'll see about that later. And the next <laughs> one, hey, the project is nearly done. We should do a security audit too. And he just cut off, too late, man. We don't have time or the budget for that. Uh, the site's been online for 10 days and we haven't done any security testing. I'm nervous. Don't worry, we'll take care of it later. Then it says, later, down, the site is down, we've been hacked. How could you let this happen? <laughs> Classic, right? Classic and so sad because it's true. That is, oh, that is so, yeah. so true. It's not even quite funny, right? It is, though. It made me laugh, but then it made me cry. Uh, so <laughs> to finish up, this, is, uh, this isn't even tech related, really. Um, but English is a very, very strange language because it's a hybridization of so many different things and it doesn't really believe in rules. It's sort of a collection of exceptions vaguely hanging together into a language. Uh, so this video asks a very simple question. What if English were phonetically consistent? Yeah. <laughs> and what's really fun is they go vowel by vowel. And so you start off, you know, with A and we have all the different pronunciations for A. So for the remainder of this video... We are going to choose one of the possible pronunciations for A and always say that. And the language starts to have a bit of a funny accent. And then they move on to the next vowel and the next vowel. And by the end of it, all five vowels have been locked into one one phoneme per vowel. And the announcer continues to attempt to read his script. And it is just hilarious. Oh, it sounds fantastic. It's really, really I, well I did done. see a sign on the side of the highway once that said, what if, why is it phonetically spelled? Why is it phonetic spelled that way? There was a joke in The Simpsons as well, actually. Uh, at one stage, Homer is, you know, Homer tries to, someone says, you know, I've given you phonetic pronunciation is how Homer reads it. It's like he's, you know, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's yeah. Uh, well, that's good. Those were good palate cleansers after a pretty gruesome security bits this week, huh? Yeah, it, w- it was a tough, tough two weeks. But hey, as long as we yep. have fun. But uh, you've given us tools to to know what to do. So uh, go patch uh, Chrome, if nothing else. And then don't open any PDFs. And don't stick any uh, Thunderbolt cables into your machine that you don't know what they're from. Basically, pretend your Mac is like an iPhone and has no ports anymore. (laughs) I think that's the best (laughs) way to go. Just don't plug it in. It'll be grand. Just don't plug anything in. (laughs) If you don't even turn it on, that'd probably help too. Oh, very secure. Yeah. Wrap it in concrete and throw it in the bottom of the river. Totally safe. All right, Bart. I think I'm going to cut you off. (laughs) Okie dokie. Until next time, stay patched 
and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. How do you do that? Send them to me at allison at podfeet.com. I've got a good dumb question a long time. Send me a question you think everybody knows the answer to, but you? Now, I guarantee you somebody else wants has that same question. I don't mean like ask me really hard questions. I mean, you can if you want to, but just send me the easy ones. Those are always fun. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. Now, if you're looking for anything to do with podfeet.com, all you got to remember is it's podfeet.com slash whatever it is you want. You want to become a patron. You want to join Patreon. How do you do that? podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to join our Facebook group, podfeet.com slash Facebook. You don't like Facebook, you want to go for Slack. We are having so much fun over in the Slack group, especially the Programming by Stealth uh, uh, channel in there. Man, that one's on fire. People are posting stuff about security and the Security Bits channel. It's a blast. How do you find the Slack group? Podfeet.com slash Slack. You want to join the chat in the, the live chat room during the live show? Podfeet.com slash chat. You want to just find some Amazon affiliate links? Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.